meditation, 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 depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is What Am I Doing Wrong? In this episode, we discuss how we often approach meditation motivated by this question. Seduced by the promise of bliss, we can miss the point. This talk was recorded in 2015. Today we are joined by John Engele. John is a longtime teacher of Shambhala training and is a video producer. His work has been broadcasted on PBS and ABC TV and has been shown at the Museum of Modern Art, the Smithsonian, the United Nations, and the Margaret Mead Film Festival. Here's John to take away the discussion. I wanted to uh, look at a question together that often comes up as it relates to practice and also more broadly in other areas of our life. What am I doing wrong? And the question comes up in relation to practice often because we think we're not making progress or we think um, we're missing something, some ingredient that perhaps other people are getting and we're not. Or we think our practice should be working one way and it doesn't seem to be working in the way that we thought that it should be working. And often it's not a matter really of the technique of doing anything wrong in terms of the practice itself, but it's more often a matter of the expectation that we bring to it. Often we bring uh, expectations that are out of alignment with what practice path is really about, or we'll have misperceptions. One in particular that is very pervasive, that all of us encounter in one way or another, is sitting with a kind of secret hope that practice will be a key into another zone, another dimension of experience. Practice will provide us with an escape from the stuff of our everyday lives, the difficulties, problems, challenges, and into some other dimension of experience. And we often have a an idea of what that would be, and even affix a label to it. Bliss. Uh, Nirvana. Enlightenment. Some idea of where we think practice should be taking us. And the problem with that is, it is just that, an idea. It's a concept. Usually we have a picture in our mind of what we think our meditation practice should be 
or what the path is ultimately about. And then we use that concept to measure our, our progress. And it's always problematic because it is just that, a concept. And also it seduces us into this kind of dynamic where we're always checking ourselves to see how we're doing, measuring our progress in a way that <clears throat> draws us out of the moment, comparing mind, you know, comparing mind kicks in and checks to see where we are in relation to this idea we have of bliss, nirvana, enlightenment, or whatever label we might attach to it. And so it takes us away from experiencing the simplicity of the moment, which is what the practice is really about. Or if we don't have some grand notion, some label, some concept, we at least may feel that our practice should be comforting or comfortable or it should be a kind of uh, pleasurable experience. And that, too, is a problem because it's often not that at all because we're sitting in the middle of our life and our life is full of difficulties and problems and questions and tensions. And if we're doing our practice properly and sitting in the middle of our life, then that stuff is bound to come up. So if we have an expectation that it should be some other way, comfortable or pleasurable or whatever, we're bound to be disappointed. And then that turns into even more of a problem. The other thing that we often get into that's very related is um, a sense of using practice to fix something that we don't like about ourselves as a kind of uh, tool for self-improvement. But approaching practice as a tool for self-improvement is also going to lead to more problems because not only are we comparing ourselves in terms of what we think is progress in fixing this aspect of ourselves that we don't like. How am I doing? How am I doing now? How am I doing now? It doesn't seem to be working. I still have that aspect of myself that I'm trying to jettison and here it's still with me and oh, this thing isn't working. So not only do we get into more comparing mind, measuring, shoulds, should be this way or that way, but we also get into more struggle because if we sit with the intention for improving ourselves in some way, then we're going to get caught up in that effort. And really, the essence of practice is about letting go of all those agendas all those projects, all those tasks that we set for ourselves that we think we're going to finally become the person we want to be. 
And so it's best to let go of all those expectations and just approach practice as an opportunity to simply be and take the attitude, I will be with myself in this time and space that I've set aside. I will be with myself just as I am in this moment and the next moment and the next moment. And that is more attuned to what practice is really about because we're affirming ourselves, we're accepting ourselves, we're being kind to ourselves. In other words, we're manifesting the kind of bravery to be with ourselves no matter what the difficulties in our life may be in that moment. It takes bravery to do that, to sit on the cushion. So just being with ourselves as we are is a manifestation of bravery and compassion, which is what the whole thing is about, realizing that. And we have the opportunity to realize it each time we sit and do our meditation practice. I wanted just to go over the essentials as a way of pointing to the simplicity of practice, of meditation practice. That's the beauty of it, is it lies in its simplicity. And anything else that we bring, any other expectation, any other concept, is something that we are adding on and is unnecessary and we can let go of. Our intention is simply to notice our thoughts and to become aware of our feeling, to feel our feelings, and to bring our attention back to the breath. And if we have some notion of enlightenment or nirvana or bliss or comfort or pleasure or any idea of how it should be, we recognize that as a thought. Let it go and come back. Keep it simple. Persevere. The Buddha taught that if we could do that simple practice, we would be able to see into the cause of our suffering. And not only that, the Shambhala teachings pick up another theme, which is at the same time we will discover who we really are. And even the tr tradition came to say we will discover the nature of reality. But any notion of what that might be is another concept. So we let that go and we just sit with the intention of coming back to the breath and leave it at that. Nothing else to worry about. But if we haven't seen into the cause of our suffering, we believe, and if we haven't discovered who we truly are, and if we haven't glimpsed the nature of reality, then we may think 
if that hasn't all become clear to us, we may think that we're doing something wrong. So we say, you know, what am I doing wrong? And we get all wrapped up in that. But the real answer to what am I doing wrong is nothing. If we're keeping it simple. If we're letting go of our expectations. And if we just continue to practice, if we're faithful to the practice, disciplined each day, sit for a little while, sit for as long as you can, get up 20 minutes earlier, whatever it takes, because the efficacy of practice is in the doing of it. And that's when it reveals the depth and truth of what it's really about. So, asking this question, what am I doing wrong in relation to our practice? And the answer is nothing, probably. We ask it more broadly in other contexts of our life, asking it more generally, you know, what am I doing wrong in my life? And usually when we ask that, in some other context, we, the implication is, the rest of the question is, what am I doing wrong that I'm not happier, is how it will come up. How, what am I doing wrong that my life isn't working out the way that I thought it should, or the way that I wanted to, or maybe I'm not achieving my goals, and I'm wondering why am I still at this point, you know, what am I doing wrong? Or as it applies to relationships, a relationship isn't working, an important relationship with a a partner, a mate, a spouse, a friend, a boss, comes up in that context. What am I doing wrong? And sometimes the question can be helpful if it doesn't become an obsession, if it's not something we cling to if it's just a kind of a prod, you know, or a wake-up call that perhaps we do need to do something differently or we do need to change direction or we do need to uh, re-examine our priorities or we do need to achieve a kind of balance where we feel that we're, something is out of balance. Or perhaps it's a need to look at old patterns that are determining what we say and think and do. And there's a repetitive quality and a quality of stuckness. And so this question, what am I doing wrong, can help us attend to that, turn our attention to the area where we think we're stuck and to look at that and to go into it. And when we incorporate that attitude into our practice, we'll discover that there is insight that arises that is part of our natural, basic, fundamental wisdom. And we'll know what to do. And it will be intuitive and have the ring of truth. So it can be helpful, but often it can be a big problem. It can turn into a problem if we become preoccupied with what am I doing wrong? And it can take various forms. It can present itself in subtle ways that we're not even 
always so aware of. So it's important to be aware of where the question is coming from. And our practice will help with that. Also, it may be arising out of some undercurrent of fear and anxiety. What am I doing wrong? It may be coming out of a kind of conditioning that leaves us doubting ourselves. Or it may be coming out of self-criticism, self-judgment, getting caught in that loop. And it's subtle and it's almost unconscious. And so with our practice, we allow it to surface, bring it to awareness so that we know what's going on, so that we can see the cause of our suffering. Sometimes it can trigger a response, that question, what am I doing wrong? That spirals us down into a dark place of depression or despair even. And the efficacy of practice, the more we do it on the cushion and we find that spiraling downward happening in the rest of our life, it can interrupt that pattern. It can pull us out of that. It's just an automatic kind of thing. We don't even have to be so intentional about it. It just happens that way because we're, we're changing our conditioning from fear and anxiety and self-doubt and self-criticism and self-judgment to a kind of openness and a friendly approach to ourselves, one that affirms who we are in that moment and appreciates that it's not easy being a human being. We cut ourselves some slack. A day before yesterday, I was... um, home alone Sunday, and my wife had gone uh, out of town to work. Our kids, we have a son and daughter there, grown up out of the house for a long time. Nobody was around. I had work to do, work-related stuff. I also had to think about this talk tonight. So I had things to do, but because nobody else was around and I was there alone, you know, I was kind of feeling that, but I, I thought, okay... I'll cook my dinner at around 6, and then I remembered the Super Bowl was on. Uh, but I didn't have a dog in the fight, as they say. I could care less who won. But I thought, well, maybe I could come to care if I picked a side. So um, I did. I picked the Seahawks. I cooked my dinner. I sat down and started to watch, and I thought, you know, maybe I can get into this if I start caring about whether Russell Wilson makes his passes connect or not. So I tried to get into that and and found myself drawn, and it was getting into the excitement of the whole thing as these things go. And um, some commercials came on. It was time for commercials. I forget if it was the end of the first quarter, which went very fast, or if it was just a timeout or something. Anyway, they go to the commercials, and I usually switch away at commercials to 
see what's on the Turner Classic Movie Channel and watch, uh, you know, Humphrey Bogart or whoever it is for a little while and then come back. But this time I remember there was supposed to be a commercial about a puppy making friends with a horse. This is a Budweiser commercial that I had read about in the business section of the paper. And so I thought, well, you know, I like to see that. <laughs> you know, who wouldn't, you know? So I stayed with it. And, and eventually I did get to see that. And it wasn't that big a deal, actually. I, they weren't that great of friends. I don't know. But, you know, the camera was there at the, you know, put the puppy on the hay and everything and the, kissed the horse's nose. And, but that was about the extent of it. But what did get me was something else, which was a series of commercials that maybe called this, I don't know, but I would call it the good dad. And this is a dad, different dads, who are always there for their kids in this commercial. It's selling cars, I believe. And always saying the right thing, you get the feeling always being completely appropriate, always available. And the relationship, the love, you know, the actors that they pick to do this, they pick them because they're worth whatever they're paying them because they act like real people. You think you're looking at real people. You think you're just having to be eavesdropping when the father's driving his daughter off to College, it must be, because she has a big backpack on. She gets out of the car. She gives him a glance back of appreciation for all the right things he always did, being the perfect <laughs> ideal father. You know, and he's tearing up, and then you feel, oh, God, yeah. But me, <laughs> I started to keep comparing mine kicked in. And I said, oh, my God, I was never like that. I was never, I could never stand up, measure up to this, you know, this guy. And pretty soon the uh, self-doubt sort of came up, that aspect that I'm very aware of in terms of my own practice. And that then spirals into stories of past mistakes. You know, I start actually thinking about things that I should have done differently. And by the time I'm looking, they have the third or fourth one of these Toyota commercials. <laughs> you know, if I could go out and buy a Toyota and change all that, I would do that. But I was thinking, let me back to the field. I'd rather see these guys giving each other concussions <laughs> than sit here and be subjected to this torment, you know. It wasn't quite that bad. I'm exaggerating just to make the point. But I saw myself start to get caught up in that self-doubt and self-recrimination. You know, and it's something I think a lot of us who are parents are familiar with. Just looking back and saying, oh, God, how could I have been so stupid? You know, why didn't I think to handle some situation some better way? And uh, it's just something we compare and despair in other words, is the principle. But this is where practice can save us because it can interrupt it, that pattern. And I, it interrupted it for me. I said, whoa, what is going on here? This is nuts, you know? These are just actors. They're trying to sell me a Toyota Camry. <laughs> and that's what it's all about. 
you know, and here I'm getting all caught up in this whole kind of moving into a depressed space in my own psyche that was completely nuts. But anyway, I did wake up out of it. I saw what was happening. I got back into the game. But, you know, from the point of view of these teachings, the past no longer exists except as a story, a story that we're telling ourselves, a story about how I might have done things differently, a story about how I ought not to have these regrets. If I'd only been a better person, then I wouldn't be caught uh, wherever I am. And the story that we're telling ourselves can feel very real because it's made up of very vivid details that we're recalling. Our practice helps us interrupt that movement uh, in our psyche, that spiraling downward. It enables us to wake up, to see the story, and to, to appreciate that it is the cause of our suffering. The other thing is, in this question, what am I doing wrong? This is a question that ego feeds on. What am I doing wrong? Because even if you have a whole litany of stuff you're doing wrong, ego is still there. You know, it's still my issues, my uh, faults, my problems, my regrets. Ego maintains itself at the center of it, even though it can be weigh you down with a, with a, a burden. Ego doesn't care. We think of ego as being just egotistical and inflated and, you know, thinking we're more special than other people or something like that. But ego is also all about self-criticism and self-judgment that we bring to our experience. You know, what's the matter with you? You're screwing up again. Why couldn't you have done that when you dropped your daughter off at school? You know, whatever. Ego thrives on aggression, and that's a very aggressive stance toward ourselves. That's self-criticism and self-judgment. Ego not only thrives on aggression, ego is aggression, according to this tradition. The whole Buddha Dharma goes all the way back to that understanding that that is what ego is. Ego is aggression. Not only is ego aggression, ego is desire, because ego wants things, wants more, uh, wants better, wants more attention, more approval, more success, more whatever it is that we think is going to make us happy. The traditional image is of a hungry ghost. You know, it's always there in the background. It has a small mouth and a large stomach. It can never be satisfied. It's always whispering in our ear more, more, more. Whatever it is we think we need more of. Um, Judy Leaf was here teaching um, uh, two weekends ago. And uh, someone, we were talking about ego <clears throat> and a woman, Laura, in the group, she said, ego is always having an agenda that goes unfulfilled. 
you know, what she's, ego is always having an agenda that goes unfulfilled. In other words, ego is based on a sense of lack. Life as it is, is never enough. It's never enough. That's the perspective of ego. So the question, what am I doing wrong, is really what am I doing wrong? And it's a way of exposing, if we look into it, what ego really is, the dynamics of ego, that ego is nothing other than these impulses that are aggressive or uh, ego as desire for something to be other than it is. Aggression toward ourselves in the sense of I'm not good enough. Self-doubt, I'm not worthy. And the result is always then taking us into this darker space of hope and fear, anxiety, disappointment, discouragement. And this is why we feel the tension within ourselves, why we feel divided within ourselves, is this aggression and desire that are a constant in the structure of ego. But practice is about awareness. And it brings ego into the light so that we can see how it's functioning, how we, so that we can see, as the Buddha taught, how it's at the core of our unhappiness. Let me just... Um, close with uh, something that came to mind as I was thinking about this question, what am I doing wrong? And I remembered a poem by Rumi, who was a 13th century um, Islamic scholar, preacher, and uh, authority on Sharia. I thought it's interesting at this time when all of that is getting such bad press to find someone who uh, has a lot to say. And Rumi is one of those people. Anyway, back in the 13th century, he's transcended the dogma and doctrine of, of the religion and became a mystic. And this is what he wrote. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field... I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. I think he's shedding light on this question. What am I doing wrong? He's saying that it creates problems for us because it implies that we're separated from our experience. Just raising the question itself is a kind of distancing, a separation between us and our experience, a separation between us and, and other people. And so he uses this metaphor of a field that represents oneness, no separation, 
a place beyond dualities of all kinds where the world is enough. Words, language, labels aren't necessary. Life as it is, is full. And where differences between people are not as important as our sameness. And in a similar sense, this is a parallel with our Dharma practice. Because from the perspective of Dharma teaching, where we're going with our practice is that field beyond concepts and language, beyond expectations, beyond notions of bliss or nirvana or enlightenment or comfort or pleasure, into just the simplicity of direct experience, which itself creates this space of immediacy and spontaneity and uh, creativity. And in that space, the question, what am I doing wrong, falls away. And it's replaced by a much more profound question, which is, what is this life? What is this life that we are mysteriously born into? So from the perspective of the Shambhala teachings, when we sit and open to our basic goodness, our inherent nature, we discover that there's nothing fundamentally wrong at all. Because nothing is lacking because we have everything that we need at the core of who we are. Wisdom, compassion, kindness, strength, goodness. This is our natural state. This is the nature of reality. This is who we are. And so we need not get hung up on the question, what am I doing wrong? Just to accept it in passing, to see it as perhaps a motivation for a course correction. Something's out of balance to bring it back into balance in our life. But whatever the case, we want to hold it lightly. To hold it lightly. And when we practice, we sit with compassion toward ourselves, affirming ourselves, accepting ourselves as we are, life as it is in this moment, appreciating that it isn't easy being human. We're doing the best we can. We sit with an open heart, accepting ourselves, loving ourselves, open to our experience, open to other people. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. 
ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. So we have five minutes before chocolate chip cookies <laughs> or whatever we got tonight. I don't know. Maybe it's hummus and celery, but whatever. Um, if you have any thoughts that you would like to bring to this discussion or uh, questions, please feel free. Hi. So if I understand correctly, you are in the creative arts, you're in the entertainment world, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of high-strung people and a lot of vibrations going on around and this is my first day here I've never been here before I've never yeah. done anything like this before so just out of curiosity is how do you um, in your day-to-day -day life dealing with histrionic personalities around you yeah. how you maintain your sanity or you just kind of center yourself and not yeah. become a, a victim to energy vampires which are everywhere Energy vampires? Yeah. That's a good expression. Yeah. I'm not really in entertainment. I do documentary work. So uh, the kind of scene you're describing is not really my w world. Okay. Um, I just have to watch myself that I don't become, you know, uh, lost in my own agenda, my own projects. I think that's all we can do is just pay attention to where we are in the moment. And my experience, honestly, with practice is that it, it does have a kind of halo effect, a spillover effect. You know, the more you practice, the more you just become aware. And I think people who have been here a long time uh, practicing, they, that's why they come back. That's why we come back. We're all just students. But uh, we come back because there is a lot to be said for just be, taking the time to be with ourselves and opening to the insights that arise out of that. I'm just wondering how you uh, relate to, uh, you know, neuroscience and brain researchers discovered that the way our brains work for survival reasons, if you present your brain with a question, mm -hmm. your brain cannot reject a question. Mm -hmm. So I can say how can I find out more about this? Or I can say, what's wrong with me? My brain assumes it must be something meaningful. So just blindly, because I present it as a question, my brain is going to assume I need to know what's wrong with me as if it was a survival issue, mm -hmm. because your brain cannot reject a question. I when see. you hear that, how do you react to something like that? Mm -hmm. I don't know how to answer that. I'm, uh, what's your take on it? I, I kind of get a sense of where you're coming from, and I think it's uh, helpful, but maybe just fill it in a, a little bit. By, by the blinded reaction that if you say what's wrong with me, yeah. your brain is going to assume it must be important, so yeah. we'll spend all day long trying to find the answer. I see. Okay. So if you just say, in this moment, how can yeah. I move myself forward, mm -hmm. your brain will find a way to move it forward because it's just, you know, whatever you put in there, it's, you know, that simple yeah. reaction. It's not consciousness there. It's just a reaction. I see. Yeah. So it might be meaningful to be aware of that when you present yourself with a question mm -hmm. that that's the reality of it. And mm -hmm. maybe our ancestors really didn't know that. 
from a scientific point of view. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think I'm just kind of warning against the danger of that question when it becomes obsessional or takes subtle forms when we're not even conscious that it's operating, that it can be coming out of some area of our conditioning, which is self-doubt and self-criticism. We get kind of caught in that uh, downward spiral. So um, it can be productive, the question, but it can also drag us down. And that's where I'm coming from. But thank you. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Maybe one more. When you talk about self-discovery... When what? When you talk about self-discovery... Yeah. ...and being with yourself, mm -hmm. isn't this a form of improvement? Mm -hmm. I guess you could interpret it that way. But you're not coming at it with some picture in your mind of the person you think you should be. So you're, there's immediately a struggle set up there where you're rejecting, you know, who you are in the moment. And you're coming to it with some concept of this image, um, you know, based on an image rather than, than just being alive in the moment. And I think what's radical about practice is it's calling us just to let all of that go, all of those projects and of self-improvement or whatever, and just, just to be with ourselves in the moment. So as opposed to a tool for self-improvement per se, it's more, it has a path quality and a discipline, and it's kind of stripping away all of the other stuff the expectations or the images or the pictures that we carry, you know, of what we would like our life to be like. And it says, this is who I am. This is the reality. This is the, the truth of the moment. Let me contact that and appreciate it and allow that to enliven me and inform me and look for the insight that arises out of just the simplicity of that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So it is 8.30. And uh, thank you for your attention. And thanks for being here tonight and coming out on this night. And uh, hang in there with your practice. That sums it up.